Uh, I want to introduce, so now we have the opportunity to hear from God's word each week, and we teach through uh, the scriptures together, and we seek to put ourselves under God's authority by listening and responding in obedience to his word. So normally, uh, our elders do that. We, as we think about preaching, if you're new to Soma, different churches do kind of teaching and preaching differently. The preaching uh, slot is really an opportunity for us to encourage one another, to exhort one another. Um, it's a space that normally we have uh, elders or staff members that are teaching. Some of our uh, paid elders teach in this space. But it's not only a space for our elders. It's not the exclusive domain. One of our jobs is to make sure that the doctrine uh, that we teach is sound in accordance with uh, uh, with history and tradition and with our theological convictions, but we also invite other gifted men and women into the space to teach and to exhort alongside of us, people who have gifts of teaching both inside and outside of our church, and we want to welcome that and create a diversity. We really value diversity in our teaching. We value hearing from a number of voices. I don't want to become I'm not a celebrity, but I don't want to become this kind of singular voice, this kind of cultic thing where it's about me or it's about a person or a personality or a persona, but rather we want to invite a community of people into this space to help us see and experience the fullness of all that God has for us in the scriptures. And so we have the privilege this morning to welcome a friend from outside of uh, Soma, Mike Cosper. Mike has been a friend of mine for a long time now. Uh, a couple years ago, we had the opportunity, we planted Soma to join what's called the Sojourn Network. It's a network of uh, about 75 or 80 churches around the country, and we partner together to plant churches and engage in justice uh, and to encourage one another as pastors and ministry leaders. And so my, my wife and I have benefited tremendously from our relationship with Mike and Sarah. They are some of the most soulful, caring people that we know. And uh, as anybody who's started any kind of business or organization or church knows, there's uh, a lot of landmines. And Mike and Sarah have just been a bastion of wisdom for us as we've walked through different seasons and different trials. And so I'm thankful for, first and foremost, his friendship. Mike also serves as our interim president right now of the Surgeon Network as we're searching for uh, a new president here in the, in the weeks and months to come. Uh, Mike also is an elder at Sojourn Community Church, East, their East uh, Church now, it used to be campus, their East Church. Uh, he and Sarah live in Louisville, which is my hometown, so I have a great affinity for them. They live uh, in, a, in a community I grew up spending a lot of time in, and so uh, they have uh, two daughters and uh, just a beautiful family. Mike is also an accomplished author. Uh, he's written most recently a book that's impacted uh, many of us in our community called Recapturing the Wonder. It's a book about spiritual formation. Uh, and he's also uh, involved with a new business initiative, a new enterprise called Narrativo. Um, and I'll, if he wants to explain more about that, I, it's something with having to do with podcasting and storytelling and all the uh, great things that Mike is really good at. And so, Mike, thank you so much for being here. Let's welcome Mike this morning as he comes to share God's word with us. Well, uh, good morning. I'm I'm super excited to be here, um, having heard about Soma for, for many years, and just excited to see what God's doing, excited to worship with you, and to, to open the scriptures with you guys. Um, I have a, a deep love for Indy. Uh, I have a lot of family that lives up here. I grew up in southern Indiana myself, um, big Colts fan. I mourn with you, but also look forward to the, the Brissette era, so with hope and prayer. Um, this morning we're going to be looking at um, a, couple of, um, a couple of big ideas, um, a couple of disciplines, a couple of practices that I think are really critical for uh, an, an intimate relationship with God. And so we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount, um, uh, just a, a couple of verses from Matthew chapter 6, um, 
we'll get there in a minute, though. I, w- I want to talk a little bit about, about why this topic matters, and, and to do that, we kind of have to pull back a little bit and look at some things that are going on in our culture. Um, a few years ago, I was, I was in my favorite coffee shop. I was writing, and uh, for some reason, this, this guy caught my eye um, walking, walking into the coffee shop. It's fairly close to a, a seminary um, in our city, and, and you can kind of spot the seminary students after a while. You can just, you just get a radar for them, and to, I could tell this kid was a seminary student. He came in, he had a book and a journal, and he set him down on a, on a table, and he, he went up and ordered a cup of coffee and then, or a latte. And he goes back, and he sits down at the table, and he's looking at his phone. And um, shortly, after, uh, shortly after, his drink comes, and he goes and gets his drink. He brings it back to the table. And he then spends the next several minutes kind of positioning the latte, positioning the books, the journal, looking at it through his phone. He didn't like it that way. He puts it over this way. The lighting wasn't quite right. At one point, he picked it up and had the book kind of fanned like that so you could read the spine in front of the latte. That didn't work either. I'm live texting this to my wife as I'm watching this take place. And um, so finally, he finds a, a, a position that he likes, and he takes the picture, and you, know, you can tell that he's posting it, and he puts it down, and, he, and then he picks up his book. And... Um, I was like, well, at least he's reading now, right? So after uh, two, three minutes go by, he immediately picks up the phone again, and he's back on the phone. And what's he doing? He's looking for the response. What do people think about my picture, right? So again, I text this to my wife because I find this so amusing. And I kid you not, 30 seconds later, she texts me the screenshot of this guy's picture that he had just posted online because he had tagged the coffee shop, and she could hunt him down. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're, you're like Batman, you're amazing, right? And, um, and the, the ironic thing about this is the book that he was taking a picture of was The Word of God by John Frame, right? So he's there, he's there to dig into this, this deep doctrine, but he's totally distracted by putting it on display, by making sure people can see it. I really think it's best to think about that story in the light of just the broader phenomenon, this, this, this world of social media, this world of performance, this world in which we constantly feel like we're on display. Uh, whether you're on social media or you're not, you, you feel the sense that you're on display in our world. The philosopher Charles Taylor calls it mutual display. It's this constant sense that people are watching me and I have to perform for them. And so social media really is a, is a great microcosm of, of how this phenomenon works. It's kind of like Pavlov's dog. We all have familiar with the story of Pavlov's dog. He, he had this dog, and he would ring a bell and give the dog a treat. And he did it that way for a long, long time. And then one day, he rang the bell, and the dog just started salivating automatically without even seeing the treat. Because what happens is when you have a reward system like that, then when you trigger it, it creates desire. And the desire is at the heart of what's going on with social media. Social media is a similar kind of reward system. It shapes our desire. I, I post, you like, I get a little burst of serotonin, so I post again and again. And if you ever post something and no one responds, well, that makes you feel real kind of empty inside. And the desire is there, but it's not being fulfilled. Greg Beale has a book it's called We Become What We Worship. And in it, he writes this. He says, what people revere 
they resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. When we revere something as shallow and hollow as social media presence or a platform or the performances that we're supposed to put on for other people, we become shallow, we become hollow, we become a veneer. I think of social media platforms as well as being like temples to little gods. We make our offering, whether it's our tweet or our Instagram post or our Facebook post, and we, we put it out there for the pantheon of others to approve of our offering. Give me your like, give me your favorite, give me your retweet. And we become what we worship. And if you want to see this on really stark display, go spend a few minutes and study the world and the lives of what they call social media influencers. These are full-time people who literally spend their, their whole life on social media and get paid to do it. They get paid to go to resorts and post from the resorts, or they get paid to wear certain clothes, or they get paid to advertise certain products. And I read this interview with this one. He's, he's super famous uh, in this world with, that I didn't know existed. But <laughs> he's like one of the lead, leading kind of I hate to call it a thought leader because it doesn't seem like it's full of a lot of thought. <laughs> but in this interview, the interview asker says, so tell me, like, outside of posting, you know, to, to Instagram, which is where he, he's really his platform, um, what do you do? And he goes, oh, I, nothing. I just get tattoos and post to Instagram. I don't watch TV. I don't read books. I just write emails and travel for work. And work, we should put in air quotes there, because this guy doesn't have a job. So he, he talks about, at one point in the interview, he talks about breaking up with his girlfriend and how he likes to make jokes about He's like, people really love it when I make jokes uh, about my ex on Instagram. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is worse than my ex or whatever. It makes my audience feel like I'm really authentic. <laughs> so first off, this is worse than my ex doesn't strike me as a really sick burn. But second, how on earth does that qualify for authenticity? It only qualifies for authenticity in a world where the veneer is the only thing that matters. The, the, the quick joke, the quip, the post that's here today and gone, to my, gone tomorrow. And I believe that this guy is loved by God and that his soul is of infinite worth because he's made in God's image. But this is not a full and flourishing life. It's the life of someone who's made a thousand sacrifices to the gods of the smartphone and he's got a seriously formative set of spiritual disciplines going on. And from, one page, from a one-page interview, you can read that he's been stripped of his relationships, stripped of the capacity to sit through a book or a TV show or a movie, but he's not stripped of his phone, he's not stripped of his liturgy, of his offerings to these little gods. So this is the world that we live in today, and that's an extreme version of it. But I believe it's a phenomenon that we all experience in one form or another, this, this need for display this gravity towards a shallow, hollowed-out life. So what are the practices? What are the things that we can do to push back against that? What, do do the, the scriptures have an invitation for us? And I believe they do. It comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. In the midst of Jesus' teaching on prayer, he says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
What's interesting here, um, I, I think critical here to see, is that Jesus is inviting us into a practice that he himself, as much as anyone in the whole script of Scripture, embodies. His life was marked as much by withdrawal as it was by engagement. We, we regularly see Jesus disappearing into the wilderness to pray. We have this, this interesting gap in, in his life from the time he was a, a young boy to the time he's 30 years old where he's not on display. He's not doing a public ministry. He's going through the formative, normal stuff of life. After Jesus' baptism, he disappears into the desert for 40 days. Throughout his ministry, he, re- he withdrew for solitude. He withdrew to solitude uh, to mourn the death of John the Baptist. Mark and Luke both use the language of desolate places. He went to desolate places. He went as far away from people as he could get to be alone in private with God. On the night before his crucifixion, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he takes the 12 with him, but when he gets there, he says, listen, you guys stay here. I'm going to go over here by myself and pray. You all pray for me over here. I'll be over here. I need to be alone to pray with God. And I think his habits of withdrawal are really a reflection of his identity as a fully and perfectly human being. I think sometimes when we think about prayer, we have to get past this misconception that, that prayer is the, the territory of the weak. Prayer is where you go when you're weak and you're tired. Prayer is where you go when you don't have resources. Prayer is when you go, you know, if, if we're strong and you have it together, you don't need a lot of prayer in your life because you've, you're, you're bootstrapping it. You've, you've got it put together. But actually, if we recognize that Jesus was perfect and that Jesus was brilliant and knew what he was doing and knew how to live a full and flourishing life, we'll see that his withdrawal to prayer is a reflection of being fully and perfectly human. Jesus had a human body, and the body is built so that it has limited resources, so that it's dependent upon God for everything from food to water to sleep, for, to, for life, for breath. And that includes the mind. The mind has limited resources for, for thoughts, for decision-making, for, for conversation, for communication. Our brains get tired, and they need rest in the sense that we, we need sleep every day, but they need other kinds of rest. They need Sabbath. They need times of withdrawal and times of intimacy with God. It was an interesting article back in 2011 in the New York Times Magazine, um, and it was called, Do You Suffer from Decision Fatigue? And what scientists looked at in this article was this reality that there's, there's basically a battery in your brain that is, helps you make decisions. And there's a certain amount of a certain chemical that gets re- replenished when you sleep. And as you make decisions, as you have to choose between this and this throughout your day, whether it's what you're eating or some major work decision or something, you know, a huge decision like, uh, like who you're going to marry, as you make those decisions, that battery gets drained. And if you don't get enough rest, it never gets, it never gets full again. So you end up with decision fatigue. You, you, you find yourself where you can't make decisions well, where you can't think through problems well. So you either make poor decisions or you delay, you procrastinate, you make bad decisions. And that's locked in. That's in your DNA. That's how the brain works. And that's how Jesus' brain worked. And so Jesus' withdrawal into solitude, his withdrawal into one-on-one intimacy with God was part of him recognizing my limitations as a human being require me to withdraw so that I can be restored 
and I can be refreshed. So I don't have to be on display at all time. Jesus incarnate and embodied experienced limitations. Just as he needed food and oxygen and sleep, he needed solitude. And we often imagine the exact opposite. We imagine the perfect human being as somebody who's invulnerable to weakness. You know, you think about Superman. Superman doesn't need sleep. Superman doesn't need food. Superman doesn't need, uh, he doesn't need anything. He just needs the yellow sun. As long as the sun is yellow, he's, he's Superman. He has superpowers. Similarly, we often, uh, we often liken high-performance athletes to machines or beasts, right? We say they go into beast mode. We think there's something superhuman about the performance of an athlete. It, but the language that we use for them actually dehumanizes them. Oh, they're not, a, they're not a human anymore, they're a machine. Far from being invulnerable and superhuman, Jesus was truly and deeply human. He's vulnerable to hunger and weakness. He's vulnerable to fear and anxiety. If you look at him in Gethsemane, sweating blood, uh, shedding tears, this is somebody whose emotions are overwhelming him. He's perfect not because he never tires of the crowd and of the work of the ministry, but because he rightly responds to weariness, withdrawing to desolate places to rest and to pray. This is the hidden ground from which his ministry arises. And notice that when the devil comes to tempt Jesus, he only came after Jesus had spent 40 days in, the, in solitude. Now some read that part of the story and they think, oh, the devil came and tempted Jesus when Jesus was at his weakest. But I don't, think that, I don't think that that's what's going on there. I think actually the opposite is going on. I think the Father sent the Son out in the wilderness to be alone, to, to experience intimacy with God, to experience dependence on God, to learn in real time in his body that he could survive without food so that when the devil shows up and starts to tempt him with things like food and pride and power, Jesus is in a place where he has immense resources to resist those temptations. He was not tempted by the bread because for 40 days he'd learned to live without it. <clears throat> but solitude, withdrawing, withdrawing to pray, is often much harder than we expect. So at the same time that I want to urge you to, to consider this for your life, I want you to, to recognize the reality of what you're going to experience when you get there. A lot of times you hear Christians have this romanticized view and they think, man, if I just had enough time, if I could just get alone, if I could just get refreshed, it would be great. It'd be blissful. But the truth is that when you get alone, you're never truly alone because you always bring yourself and your problems and your anxieties with you. Anne Lamott talks about writing this way. She says that when you sit down to write, you unfortunately bring yourself with you and all of your anxieties line up like cats just staring you down as you try to work. In solitude, we seek God, but the first thing we counter is ourselves. The real you shows up. So if you're frustrated with your sex life, if you're tired of compulsively eating garbage, if you're burdened by shame because of addictions, all of those things are going to come to the surface when the noise quiets down. Solitude often forces you to look at these sorrows square in the face and forces you to reckon with the cold reality, which is we love our busyness. We love the life of performance where we feel like we're in control of what people think about us. We love our busyness. We like the chaos of our lives. We like them because they distract us from ourselves. David Foster Wallace calls talks about solitude 
in one of his novels, and he talks about how people fear the terror of silence. It's why the TV's on all the time. It's why the noise is on all the time. It's why we love our smartphones, because we don't have to face the terror of silence. We don't withdraw from, ever have to fully withdraw from anything and face ourselves, face what's going on inside of us. So the TV's on all the time. You're looking at your phone. You're on social media. You're playing video games. You're compulsively checking email. You're constantly surrounding yourself with other people. You're throwing yourself in your work. I remember one of my favorite scenes in, in Curb Your Enthusiasm. Um, it's not a show for everybody. But uh, there's this great scene in Curb where uh, Larry and Jeff are, Larry David and, and, and Jeff, uh, uh, oh, I forget his last name, Jeff. Larry and Jeff are getting on an airplane. They're going to fly from L.A. to New York City. And they get on the plane, and they sit down, and, and Larry's got a magazine, and he's flipping through the magazine. And Jeff just sits down in the chair and crosses his arms and kind of just sits there. And Larry, you know, is looking at his magazine and kind of looks over. He's getting real uncomfortable, and he's like, hey, what, what are you doing? And Jeff's like, I'm sitting. And he's like, yeah, but, I mean, what are you going to do in the flight? And he's like, I'm going to sit here. And he's like, you can't just sit there. You can't just sit there and do nothing. And he's like, what's wrong with sitting here doing nothing? You couldn't imagine the idea of just sitting silent for five hours on an airplane doing nothing. And none of us can imagine that, right? Like, I had some crazy international travel this summer, and I watched hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of movies, some of them over and over again, because it was, I mean, I think I had 60 hours on airplanes this summer. And... There, I had movies going the entire time because I, like you, can't handle the terror of silence. And also, air travel is miserable. <laughs> so, if we're going to step into a practice like solitude, we have to recognize that we're stepping into something that's challenging. And like anything that's worth doing, it's challenging. So we practice solitude like a, like a beginning violinist who's going to first practice poorly. But poor practice marked by wandering and restless mind isn't bad practice. Done with some regularity, it can become rich. We can discover the space in our hearts and in our world where the Lord meets us. As we'll see, it's the beginning of the end of our religious efforts, a chance to face both the reality of our spiritual poverty, the reality of our deep, deep need, and the wealth of God's blessings that come in his, with his presence. Now, often the Bible likens God's relationship to his people to that of lovers. God is the lover, and we are the beloved. And lovers share more than just physical intimacy. If you're truly in love with someone, you share your whole life. You share your secrets. You share the dark side, the dark aspects of your life. You open yourself up to them. And nothing's going to end a relationship more quickly than somebody who violates the trust of that relationship. You see this in marriages all the time. You see this in dating relationships. Somebody shares something that's intimate, that's painful, that's, that's shameful, and if it gets shared outside of that circle, then trust is broken, and it could be broken forever. Similarly, we need a space for a similar kind of intimacy with God. I think a lot of times the only thing that exists between us and God and no one else is our sin. And, and that's okay. It's okay that we're bringing our sins to God and that we're keeping those things intimately between us and him. But what is something that's happened between you and the Lord that is just for you and him? What's something that's happened in your relationship with God 
that you haven't felt compelled immediately to, to share, to display. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible tells us to cultivate, to, 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 to share. The Bible tells us to tell of the wonders of what God has done. But it also calls us to an intimacy, which means there are going to be times when the Lord speaks to you or blesses you with his presence that maybe you should keep between you and him, that you don't have to post on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram about, that you don't have to run and, and tell someone immediately. There are things that can happen in the prayer closet that belong there and that have a, cultivate a deep intimacy between you and the Lord. We need a space in our life for stories and experience, for stories and experiences that exist only between he and us. So we have to guard the borders of our solitude with another discipline that uh, the church has historically practiced and historically called the practice of secrecy. There need to be aspects of our spiritual life that are kept intimate and private between us and God alone. Let's go back to that passage in Matthew chapter 6. It says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. What Jesus is rebuking here is a life of religious display. It's a life lived for the entertainment of others. It's a life lived for the propping up of yourself. If it's a religious life that's meant to get other people excited about what God's doing in your life for the purpose of making you look good, not for the purpose of glorifying him. And I think if this is something that we struggle with, the practice of secrecy is, is such a gift. Because if, if you recognize in yourself that every time you go to read the, the Bible, or every time you go to pray, or every time you go to read a, a spiritual book of some sort, that you're eagerly looking for pull quotes to, to post online, or, or you're, you're wanting to do it in a way that gets you recognition, then the discipline of secrecy is the perfect thing to break you of that to draw you into something that's much deeper and much more intimate. That impulse is nothing new. The technology we have makes it easier to do, but the impulse isn't new because the spirituality of Jesus' day is marked by people who made grand shows of their religious affections. They made a grand display of coming to the temple and of giving their offerings or of praying their prayers. But if you're praying because you want to be esteemed by the people who see you pray, that is the only benefit that you'll receive, is the esteem of others, not the presence and blessing and grace of God. Jesus both embodies and invites us into the practice of solitude and secrecy. They're disciplines of withdrawal and disconnection, a way of making space for a truly intimate and personal relationship with God. And I think in our day, in our moment, in our specific cultural moment, these are key disciplines and maybe, maybe the starting place for some of us for taking the next steps in intimacy with God. We need to establish a safe, private place to cultivate lives of prayer and intimacy because if we don't shut down the noise, we'll never get there. And one of the things that I think is so interesting about... about um, one of the reasons I think that this is so essential is that we're a mystery to ourselves. Uh, John Calvin famously says at the beginning of the, inst the Institutes of the Christian Religion that there's no knowledge of God without knowledge of self. And I think many of us walk around fully unaware, deeply unaware, I should say, deeply unaware of what's going on inside of us. 
And I think that's the other reality that we're going to encounter when we step into solitude. We're going to encounter ourselves. We're going to encounter the, the, the version of us that God knows and loves and wants to bring out and, and mature and grow. There's a, a speech that a philosopher, a woman named Hannah Arendt, gave in 1976 uh, or 1975 that, uh, that I think speaks really well to, to some of these dynamics. She, she's a really important political philosopher in the 20th century, and she received the Sonning Prize, which is an award that, uh, a national award that's given in Denmark for people who've contributed significantly to European culture. And Arndt felt really uncomfortable getting a prize like this. She was deeply dis you know, uncomfortable with it. She tried to decline it, but then eventually she was talked into accepting it. And so she gives this really interesting speech um, about what it's like to be a public figure. And it, she acknowledges that most of this role, you know, that in, in accepting this award and in doing her philosophical work, that it was all a persona. That it's all, it's all a persona. This is what she says. She says, the word persona, at any event, originally referred to an actor's mask that covered his individual personal face and indicated to the spectator the role and the part of the actor in the play. So she's talking about Greek, uh, Greek performance plays. They, they would wear a mask that defined their character, and the persona was how they would define, uh, was, was the term that they used for the mask. This mask, which was designed and determined by the play, there existed a broad opening at the piece of the mouth through which the individual voice of the actor could sound. It is from this sounding, through the, it is from sounding through that that the word persona was derived, personare, to sound through. It's the verb of which persona, the mask, is the noun. So what Arndt's saying and, and what Arndt says elsewhere in the speech is that she, she deeply agrees with Shakespeare when he says that all the world is a stage and all the men and women are merely players. We appear and perform in the world, presenting ourselves as this kind of a person or that kind of a person. We're, again, we're always putting ourselves on display in one form or another. But Arndt knew that the danger of confusing those appearances and personas with our real identity. Arndt was convinced that there's something deeper about us than the versions of us that we put on display. And so in the speech, what she's saying is that she's willing to appear for a moment as a public figure so long as she and the audience understand that it was a mask she was going to wear and to sound through for a brief moment, after which she would withdraw again to her ordinary private life. She goes on to say this. She says, when the events for which this mask was designed are over, and I have finished using and abusing my individual right to sound through the mask, things will again snap back into place. Then I, greatly honored and deeply thankful for this moment, shall be free not only to exchange the roles and masks that the great play of the world may offer, but free even to move through that play in my naked thisness, identifiable, I hope, but not definable, and not seduced by the great temptation of recognition, which in no matter what form can only recognize us as this or that, that is, something which we fundamentally are not. The phrase that's so striking to me is when she talks about my naked thisness that's identifiable but not definable. There's something about us, there's something about being human that we'll never quite get to the bottom of. We'll never quite get to the bottom of ourselves. But in solitude, we can begin to explore some of what that is. And what's most remarkable about solitude is that when we get to solitude, we get there and we meet a God who does understand us fully. 
who does know us most deeply and who can open our eyes to who we are and to who we are in Christ and to who we can become by his mercy and by his grace. Arndt's comments are helpful in pointing out that the great danger for our souls is not that we show up and perform, because we can't get away from that. The fact is that we have to go through our lives performing certain roles. There's a way that you act as a father that's necessarily different than the way that you act as, a, as an employee. But what becomes dangerous is if you begin to simply define yourself as one thing, if the, if the display, if the persona becomes everything for you. And the only way to avoid that is to withdraw and to come to terms with who you are in Christ when you're alone. Our responsibility is to be fooled, is to never be fooled that the persona is the real thing or the whole thing. We're not merely whatever role we play in the world, whether that's a public figure, a celebrity, a mother, a father, an engineer, a vending machine repairman. We cannot be reduced so narrowly and so trivially. The truest and most real version of us exists primarily and most wholly in the hidden ground of solitude where we meet with God in intimacy. The temptation of recognition would draw us out of that hidden ground and seduce us into thinking that the mask, the persona, the veneer, is the real me. And we have to resist that temptation. Life often demands that we appear on the stage of the world. It mocks us, it shouts at us, it demands that we perform. It's the whole phenomenon of dance, monkey, dance. You feel it at work, you feel it at school, you sometimes feel it amongst your friends. And sometimes we have to perform, and sometimes that performance gets rewarded, and people think we're great, and we want them to think we're great, and so we keep performing again and again. But in solitude, that artifice shatters. The real, confusing, complicated me shows up, and I have to reckon with it in its mysteriousness and its contradictory wholeness. But I don't have to do it alone. I can do it in intimacy with God. Again, Calvin said, there's no knowledge of God without knowledge of self. And truly knowing ourselves, knowing what's happening inside of us, our wants and desires and needs, only comes when we make space to be simply us before God. And that only happens in solitude, and it's only protected by our secrecy. And there's one final thing I want to say about this passage, and it's, it's that this passage is an incredible invitation. It's remarkable in two ways. First off, Jesus doesn't tell us that we have to go to the temple to pray. He doesn't tell us that we have to go find holy ground or sacred ground. He's telling you, go to your closet. Go to the most humble place in your house. And God is there. And he's there to meet you. Sometimes I think when we think about solitude, when we think about our devotional lives, our spiritual disciplines, we feel like we have to get everything just right. We have to kind of cultivate the holy ground, right? Which for us probably means something, well, for me, it means I have to have a good cup of coffee, I have to have a nice pen, I have to have a journal that feels good in my hand, a nice Bible that smells good, nice leather Bible, right? I care about those things, and those things matter, but they're not essential. The fact is that God has met me in intimate ways in some very ordinary places with some very unimpressive pens. Secondly, it's a remarkable invitation in the same way that Hebrews 4.16 is a remarkable invitation. Hebrews 4.16 tells us to go and boldly enter into God's presence. And if you, if you look at the story of the scriptures, especially if you look at the story of the scriptures in the Old Testament, the presence of God is a fearful thing. It's a frightful thing. 
Because we as sinners can't bear the presence of a holy God. And yet Jesus is telling us, go in your closet and pray. The Father's going to meet you there. And the reason he can do that is he knows where he's going. He knows what he is going to continue to do with his life, which is that he's going to march to a cross, he's going to be crucified in our place, buried, and risen on the third day. And in, in his ascension, he ends up at the right hand of the Father, and elsewhere in the book of Hebrews it tells us that he lives to make intercession for you. His vocation right now is that he's praying for the church. He's praying for you. So when you go to that prayer closet, when you shut the door, and you say, I'm going to be an intimate with God, I'm going to bring the real me, I'm going to discover what's happening in my heart and soul, and I'm going to work it out in the presence of the Father, you have Jesus himself praying for you as you do that work. What better news could there possibly be than that? Let's pray. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Give us the grace of your presence and the courage to pursue it. Give us a hunger for you and you alone as the one who can affirm and strengthen us. Comfort us when we feel the longing for affirmation from others. Strengthen us when we're tempted to pursue it. And most of all, God, I ask that you'd reward us with the graces that only silence, solitude, and secrecy can give us when we seek and find your face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.